Okay, we're in James chapter 2. So you should have your finger there already. And we're talking about faith and works and the danger of a dead faith. The danger of a dead faith. All through the book of James, he's been talking about the testing of our faith. And here, we're looking at what the test to our faith is of a faith that does not have any works associated with it. There have been so many books and so many journal articles and theological journals written about this passage here, it's just incredible, the controversy that it has uh, enraged in, in many circles and, and stirred up in others. And so when there's, there's a certain sense in which this whole passage is very, very simple, but then there's another sense in which it's very difficult, as I stated earlier. So we're just going to kind of walk our way through it, and the things that are clear, we're going to state emphatically, and the things that aren't, we'll leave until we get more light on them and can understand them a little better. Um, Some of them, because of textual issues, I don't know that we ever will solve or resolve the questions surrounding it. So we'll go from there. When James left off in verse 13 concerning judgment without mercy and he that hath showed no mercy and mercy rejoices against judgment, you'll notice in verse 14 that he doesn't have um, anything there to indicate a new section or a new thought. He just starts off, what does it profit, my brethren? One of the things I think it's very, very important, and, and it's hitting me more and more in this book, is really it's a lot like the book of Hebrews. And that is the issue of initial salvation or our coming to Christ is not what's in view here at all. So if you just erase that from your mind when you read the book of Hebrews... And if you'll do the same thing when you read the book of James, you'll go a long way to understanding both of these books. Why is that so? Because he's, both of them actually are discussing the topic of our faith following receiving Christ as our Savior. And we made that statement when we started the book of James at the very beginning, that James does not question or doubt the faith or the conversion, if you will, of those whom he's writing to. He never questions that anywhere in this book. What he does question is their daily faith, their walk day by day, and the testings and trials that accompany their daily faith. And that's what's in view here. And that gives us a lot of clarity to this passage, if you remember that. 
So when he begins to ask this question, what does it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? Understand that he's not asking whether he is believing in Jesus or not believing in Jesus. That isn't the question. How do you know that? Well, right in the middle of that verse, he says, what does it profit my brethren? He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who know the Lord. And he's asking those people, what does it profit you, brothers and sisters? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? So that's a good starting point. That's a good base, a foundation to establish as you approach this passage. Not just the whole book of James, but remember that right here in this passage. He makes it very clear. And his question then is, with respect to the believers, the brethren, what value or benefit is it? What profit is there, brothers, if a man says he has faith? That is, a daily, living, abiding faith if he doesn't have any works associated with it. And of course, the type of question framed here expects what you and I would call the obvious answer. It has no benefit. It has no value. It doesn't profit him in any way. And that's a dangerous position to be in. To say that I have faith, that I believe all the orthodox truths of historic Christianity... And you don't have any works to go with that benefits you nothing. Now, he goes on to say there, can faith save him? Well, that throws a lot of us for a loop there. Because we see that word save. And we think that he's talking about those who first came to Christ. And he isn't. First thing you want to notice, and it's not evident to probably most any of us in our English Bibles here, is that in right in front of that word faith, there's an article in the Greek, the. Can the faith save him? Now, what would that mean? Well, because the first mention of the word faith, though a man say he hath faith, does not have an article. But there are several references in the following verses that have the article in front of it. For instance, if you look at verse 17, where it says, even so the faith if it hath not works, is dead. And then if you look at verse 20, 
But wilt thou know, O vain man, that the faith without works is dead? Verse 22 says, Seest thou how the faith wrought with his works? And then if you look at verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so the faith without works is dead also. So we have really what you would call the article of previous reference. When he's being specific about the faith, then he's talking about the previous referenced mention of the word faith, which is in verse 14, What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? So you see that really everything else in this passage goes back to that question in this verse. Verse 14. What is the problem when a man would make a proclamation by saying he has faith, but he doesn't have any works to go with his faith? And the second question Can the faith save him? Can the faith that he's talking about that doesn't have any works associated with it, can it save him? Well, of course, right away, one of the things that that, that really should be clear to us then is the way James has framed this question then is that faith is an absolute essential to the Christian life. In other words, think of it this way. You cannot just receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and then go on throughout the rest of your life thinking everything's hunky-dory and I've got all my issues about eternity settled, my relationship with God is taken care of, and I'm fixed. I don't have to worry about anything else. That would be a huge distortion of the scriptures because everything else in the scripture has to do with what we do with that faith once we have received the Lord Jesus Christ second thing he says and have not the works there's an article in front of the word works That's very specific. It's the kind of works, not just any kind of works, but it's the works that one would expect to be associated with the faith. And where would we learn about those? Well, that's what's, that's what's encompassed in the rest of Scripture here. The kinds of things that God expects of us as those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be practicing and doing. Now, he mentions some of these we've looked at already. We looked at the issue last week of partiality and how you treat those who come into your service, rich and the poor. In just a moment here in verses 15 and 16, he's going to talk about the poor again, those destitute and in need of food and clothing. 
and how we react to them, how we respond to such needs. But before we get there, we got to address that question there, can the faith save him? Well, we have the same rhetorical question in view. We have the same kind of frame for a question as the previous one. And again, it expects the obvious answer. You would sit there and read that. I think any normal person would sit there and read that and say, well, the way James is saying that, he's saying, he's thinking, no, it can't save him. And you'd be right. And as a matter of fact, in the Greek text, in front of this sentence, can the faith save him, there's a negative particle. May. No, not the faith cannot save him. That's why some translations render this verse, can the faith save him? No. Faith cannot save him. Can it? It's, it can't do it. Now, next question. Well, what does James mean then by save? What is he talking about then? Well, I'd like to point out two things about what we've covered already in the book of James, and I think that's essential to know in order to figure that out. And it's not that difficult, although it regularly gets looked over and missed. If you, and, and if you go back, and I, I, I stated this um, last week, and then uh, whenever, I missed a week, so it was a week or two before that. When we talked in James uh, 2 uh, about the first part of this uh, chapter, when we were talking about the issue of partiality, and he said in verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? And then back in chapter 1 and verse 12, when James opened his letter and was speaking about the attitude and the perspective that we should have in our trials in addressing how we deal with them, you'll notice then in verse 12, he said, when you have been tested and found approved, and that's what the word uh, temptation, excuse me, the word tried in verse uh, 12. Blessed is the man that when he endures temptation or testings and when he is tried or approved, he shall receive the crown of the life. And there's, we said there was an article in front of the word life. It's the life. And so we made note of the fact that these two references are speaking about the same thing. They are speaking about that future event that will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back to rule the earth. And we wouldn't expect anything less because this is the very thing that, G, uh, that James heard from the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he preached the gospel, when he was up on the earth. And it wasn't but just a, maybe three or four or five years prior to the time he wrote this letter. Possibly even less than that. 
This is a very early letter. This was fresh in the mind of James and his readers. They understood exactly where he was coming from. They understood what he meant. So when he says, can the faith save him? We have to ask ourselves, save for what? What's the context here? Well, it's saved for the receiving the benefits of what God has promised in the future when the Lord Jesus comes. It is receiving a crown. It's participation in his coming kingdom. How do we know that? Well, let's try something here. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 19, which I think is one of the the clearest evidences for what um, this word means in this context and how the Lord Jesus Christ used it, how the apostles used it and understood it. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 19, you probably well know he's, Jesus deals with the rich young ruler here. He comes approaching the Lord wanting to know how he may have eternal life. And we've said this so many times, I'm sure you could repeat it back to me, that he's not asking Jesus how he could have endless life. He's asking him how he could have life for the coming age. That's what the word eternal means. It's eonios life, age-lasting life. And if you turn to Mark's gospel and to Luke's gospel and the account of the, of the rich young ruler, both of them say, what must I do to inherit age-lasting life? Furthermore, if you look at the end of this passage here in Matthew, he asks the same thing. He says in verse 29, Everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit age-lasting life. Now, this is not life received as a free gift that he's speaking of. He's talking about an inheritance. Now, by the way, that's why when Jesus makes his reply to this ruler, that he doesn't tell him, well, just believe on me. But he tells him to obey the commandments. And he says, which ones? And, and he says, well, I've, I've done these. And, and he says, but you lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor. Well, does that sound familiar about the poor? And about what James is about to tell us about the poor, the destitute, the naked, and how we treat them with respect to our faith. And he says, if you do that, he says, then you'll have treasure in heaven. And notice how there are so many different expressions in this passage here, all related to that term, eternal life. He says, 
in verse, when he, in verse 16, he asks him, what must I do that I may have age-lasting life? Notice in verse 17, Jesus says, but if thou wilt enter into, he doesn't say age-lasting life. He just abbreviates it and calls it the life. If you want to enter into the life. Well, that expression alone lets us know that any time we would see that, that used in the, in the New Testament, the life, that there's a specific meaning attached to it. And it's the future life. It's the future life of the kingdom. That which we would experience under the Lord Jesus. And then we already noted in verse 21, he called it treasure in heaven. In verse 23, he talked about entering into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 24, he talks about entering into the kingdom of God. And finally, in verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be what? Saved. Well, what would you think that the context here then, who can be saved, would be talking about? And what would it be talking about? Because Jesus' 12 apostles had a question about that. Well, if that's the case, the nature of it, who then can be saved? If it's that difficult to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, who can be saved? Well, the context very clearly relates us to entrance into the kingdom. And the word saved here has to do with entering into the kingdom. As a matter of fact, then, Jesus goes on to tell them that in the regeneration, which means in the renewing of all things, when the earth is renewed, when I come back to restore the earth, And set up my kingdom. Then you which have followed me. Will sit on 12 thrones. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says. And everyone. Who has forsaken fathers and mothers. And houses and wives and lands. And and so on. For my name's sake. Shall inherit. Age lasting life. Now if you look at Mark's account. And Luke's account. They all are exactly the same. There's no difference there. And so when you come to the book of James, and you read this account here, and this question, can that faith save him, then it's essential to know the, faith he's, the kind of faith he's talking about. It is the faith that we carry with us Having received the gospel. Well, what was the content of the gospel? Well, we've clearly established. And months and years gone by. And and Royce Powell long before me. And A.E. Wilson long before me. And Pember and Panton and, and Lang and so on before them. That the content of the gospel faith is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel that Jesus himself came preaching and proclaiming to Israel, to the 12 disciples, 
and that which all the apostles continued to preach and proclaim all throughout the book of Acts, following the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And which, by the way, we are to continue to preach and proclaim today. And so, back in James chapter 2, when he says, Can the faith save him? Then he's talking about that man's faith having received the gospel of the kingdom. Can that faith save him if he doesn't have any works to go with it? And James says, no, it can't. He's in danger of failure to enter into the kingdom because of his lack of works. Now, does he have any faith? Well, sure he does. He has faith. We find out later that James calls it dead faith. A faith without any life to it. A faith that is not animated. And if you go down to the very last verse of this section, which happens to be the last verse of the chapter, verse 26, he gives us an analogy there to show us what he's talking about. He says, For as the body without the spirit is dead. Now just analyze that for a moment. You have a body, and the body is dead. When does the body die? When the spirit leaves the body. So when the spirit leaves the body, what do you have, you know, if you had somebody laying down there and they were dying and then the spirit left the body, what would you have? You still have a body down there, don't you? And James is saying that in the same way, he says, so faith without works is dead also. So you have faith laying down here, but the works are gone. You don't have any. So do you still have faith? Well, you do. You have faith, it's just a dead faith. But you see, that's contrary to the way many, many preach that today. They interpret that to say, if your faith is dead, then you don't have any faith at all. And they would interpret James as saying, well, if you don't have a spirit, then you don't even have a body. The body's gone. It's dead. It's not even there. And therefore, you're not even saved. Do you get the picture? So they're saying then that if you don't have works associated with your faith, then you're not saved eternally, if I can use that expression. In other words, you don't even have a relationship with God. Nothing's happened in your life. You're not a new creation. You're nothing. You're still dead in your sins. Well, that's not what Paul or James is talking about at all. He's talking about a person who has received Christ, who has faith. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 14, a man says he has faith. He just doesn't have any works to go with it. And he says that kind of faith will not save you 
for what's to come. Now he goes on in verses 15 and 16 to illustrate that in a, in a very simple way. He just says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you would say unto him or them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Now, even a cursory reading of that by you and I, we would get the understanding here that, you know, we were, when, you, when somebody would say something like that, you're getting the idea that they were imparting to them some kind of comfort, even though they were in need of clothing and in need of food for that day. As a matter of fact, this, this expression, depart in peace, was a common Hebrew expression. Let, let's just look at a couple of them. We don't have time to any, anywhere near time to, to, look at, um, to look at all of them. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. We'll just take that one for a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 17. So what did I do? I turned to 17.1 instead of one seventeen. You remember the, the, the context here. Hannah appearing before Eli. And she came to the Lord and wanted to have a child, a son. And Eli, of course, thought she was drunk, and she said, no, 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 that's not the case at all. I'm here because I'm, I'm wanting a son, and I'm praying to the Lord. And in verse 17, it says, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. Now, could you imagine what came over Hannah? as she received the blessing from Eli, the priest, as she left the tabernacle. That's, what, that's the idea you get from this word, this phrase, this expression, depart in peace or go in peace. You're supposed to leave with a good sense of well-being. And there are several others I could quote to you. I want to turn to one other one here. Mark chapter 5, verse 34 in the New Testament. Mark chapter 5 and verse And here Jesus is dealing with one who had uh, touched his garment, looking for healing. And down in verse 34, he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. And again, you see the context is that this go in peace is to, to depart with a 
sense of well-being, of satisfaction. My needs have been met. And if you looked up all the other expressions in the scriptures, you would see they all mean the same thing. And so what James is saying here is to use such an expression to one in need who is destitute of food and clothing and you don't provide for them. He says, what does it profit you? Which, by the way, to me, makes it important that when God brings people like that across our path, we need to be very careful, you know, how we deal with them. That we don't just brush them off and say, here's a, here's a, you know, here's a hustler. Here's somebody out, you know, trying to get a dollar real cheap. Be real careful. And I understand the feeling you have about it. I feel the same way. I don't like to be taken. (laughs) But we need to be real careful because there are people with real needs. And how we respond to those is indicative of our faith. And so he says then in verse 17, Even so, the faith, if it hath not works is dead being alone. If you just say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, you know, try to have a good feeling about that. Go find you some food somewhere, fella. You, you need to really get a good meal and get some clothes on your back. And you don't do it yourself, then your faith is a dead faith. And it's basically worthless because it has no profit as far as the future coming kingdom is concerned. It's merely a dead faith. And I would dearly love to move on right here. But because the hour is where it is, I think this is an appropriate place to stop and we will take up the rest of this discussion next week, Lord willing. But notice in verses 18 and 19, I want you to notice that an objection comes up. James says, yea, a man may say. So go ahead and read that. And consider what James has to say by this imaginary objector to to his argument about faith being dead without works. Okay? And just remember, works are essential. Not only to us corporately as a church are we to be about doing good works as a body, but individually in our faith. Works are absolutely necessary. I hesitate to use the expression that works are, are, are evidence of faith. Because if I do, then we tend to think, well, then I got to have works as evidence that I'm saved. And that's not what I'm talking about. 
That's not what James is talking about. But he is saying that works are evidential regarding our daily faith. What we have once we have received Christ Jesus the Lord as our Savior. And we, we know his kingdom gospel. We know what the future holds. And we're living our lives in light of and in view of that coming kingdom. We are hoping for it. You see, you could hold all the truths, all the doctrines associated with that. And you could really be excited about the coming of Christ and the establishing of his kingdom. And then find out, but I don't have works to go with that. That's what's going to come up at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's why we have to be careful that our lives are, are, are characterized by those kinds of good works. The kind that are spoken of here in this word. Same kind that, that, that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. Some simple little things like, you know, don't, don't, when you, you know, if you pictured this room as a field, he said, don't, don't cut way up into the corners and harvest all the wheat or the barley. You know, leave a little in the corners there for the poor. Things as simple as that. And we can do it. And it makes me very conscious about what I do, how I react to people when I meet them that, have needs like that. I think sometimes when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, you know, at the beginning of the week, he said, let every man lay, be, uh, lay in store. I think that was probably something behind what Paul was talking about. Having something set aside so that when the occasion presents itself, you do have something wherewith you can help those in need. Whether and, and by the way, you know it's it's material needs most of the time. Sometimes it might be some kind of a social need, but most of the time, as we've experienced it and know it here, it's most of the time a material need. And if God has blessed us and made it possible for us to help them, then we need to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've, again, given us a, an hour in which we could spend together as a church family to enjoy the fellowship of your spirit, to know that your spirit is here, present with us, as we worship you in song and in prayer, but also in word. And I pray, Father, that we might see ourselves, as James mentioned in chapter 1 of his letter here, as the one looking in a mirror, that we might have a proper look at ourselves in our walk before you. Grant it, we pray, that we might be honoring to you in every way. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.